Hey moms, Brie here. Question, have you ever found yourself at a loss for words when it comes to helping your athlete daughter? Specifically, before a game when she's feeling super nervous and you just want her to be confident or in that car ride home when she's being hard on herself and you just want her to also see the good things she did out there. Now, if you have, you're not alone. It's so hard to know what to say to get her out of her head and start believing in herself. That's why I'm excited to share about our four-day What to Say Challenge happening this month. This challenge is specifically designed for moms of girl athletes to help you know what to say to build her confidence without making things worse or causing her to shut down. Even if you're often met with things like, you have to say that, you're my mom. Over the four days, we'll be together for short trainings to give you strategies and scripts so you'll never be stuck wondering what to say again. The challenge is happening May 14th through 17th, and registration is open now for early bird pricing. So you get 60% off the challenge, and you can hop in for just $19. Head to sportsmom.fyi forward slash challenge to register. That's also linked in the show notes. We kick off on Monday, May 13th with our pre-party, and I hope to see you there. Welcome back to the Raising Unstoppable Girl Athletes podcast. I'm Coach Bree, a mental performance coach for girl athletes, and I am thrilled that you are here. No matter where you are on your journey of athletics with your daughter, whether you're just getting going or you have undergone a lot of seasons, this podcast is for you to help her build confidence and mental strength, and also so that you both can enjoy this sports journey. Now, this episode today is one that you are going to want to save, download, and have on repeat. We are interviewing clinical sports psychologist, Hillary Cawthon, and she has an amazing perspective just from being in the field of sports psychology and also as a mom to four girl athletes herself. So we dive into a lot into this episode. I'm going to give you kind of a sneak peek in a second here, but before I do, I want to give a shout out to a mom who is in our community. So somebody who is putting the reps in, she is doing the work with her daughter. Her and her daughter are both going through the elite competitor program right now, which is our mental training program for girl athletes and their moms. And her name is Emily and Emily posted this in our group the other day. She shared a win. She said Stella moved up an entire competitive dance level. We received the contract today. The level up was unexpected. And of course, so exciting. I feel like I supported her so well this season by being the mom and understanding my role. So Emily, this is huge. I love that your daughter is getting this success and experiencing this leveling up. And it's such a testament to the fact that when parents, when moms are doing their part to know their role and know how to best support their athletes, their athletes get the benefit. And that's where this sweet spot happens inside our program, where moms are learning how to best support their athlete daughters. Athlete daughters are doing their work on their mental game. And when it comes together like this, this is what we love to see. So congrats, Stella. Congrats, Emily. We are so proud of you. All right, we're going to get into this episode. I'm going to give you a little background on Hillary. She is a clinical sports psychologist who strongly believes in the practice of embracing personal growth, enhancing performance, and enriching one's passion for athletic and professional endeavors. Now, Hillary and our company had a lot in common, obviously, but we specifically talked about sports culture and the toxicity that comes along with sports culture at times. And I've heard from many of you who do hit on this when it comes to some coaches and teammates and just kind of what's accepted in sport that wouldn't be accepted in many other environments. We also talk about the six parent 
types, the six sport parent types, and how to be the parent type that is most supportive of athletes so that athletes can have their best sport experience. We also go into very common questions that I get asked when it comes to visualization and breath work and strategies that work to help athletes with their mental game. Hillary gets to provide us with perspective that is just so valuable and so useful. So without further ado, let's go ahead and listen to this episode with Hillary. I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed talking with her. All right. Welcome, Hillary, to the Raising Unstoppable Girl Athletes podcast. Yes. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you on. First, I know you already gave me a big background, but I'm going to have you repeat it for our community. Can you give us a background of you and just what you do? Sure. I'm the co-founder of Texas Optimal Performance and Psychological Services. It's a private practice in Austin, Texas, and where primarily I specialize as a clinical sports psychologist. So I work with a lot of elite adolescent athletes, collegiate athletes, executive coaches, just high performance domains, and then a lot of parent coach education and organizational leadership. So really working on this continuum of care on the mental health, mental illness, and then preventative work with mental skills training and performance optimization. Um, so great. <laughs> Such in a, yeah. so in alignment with what we do here at Elite Competitor, because we always say we're a little bit different than many mental training programs, because we don't just provide support for the athlete. We also provide support for the parent because of how important the parent role is in the athlete's athletic experience. So yeah, I'm excited to jam on this. Now you are TED Talk famous. <laughs> One of my goals <laughs> is to do a TED Talk. So, I mean, that could be another conversation about like how you went about that, but your topic of your TED talk, the toxic mm-hmm. culture of sports is super intriguing to me. And you're writing a book about this. So can you give us a quick, like synopsis of that, the toxic culture of sports? Yeah. So I think like in 2018, when I really decided to speak out about this, right, it was a lot of the unspoken truths or experiences, whether it was for myself as a youth athlete to a collegiate athlete, the stories that I've been told from the clients that I was working with, what I was preparing for, I'm a mother for daughters. And so what I was like watching the landscape in preparation for going in the sport world, I was just at a place where I really needed to speak out and say, Hey, these things exist. This is a toxic culture. And we allow these things to occur in sport that we would never allow to occur in certain areas, like how we speak to our children, how we speak to even adult athletes, the environments we place them in, the uneducated, the abuse that occurs that no one really is kind of we turn a blind eye to, and we might not call it abuse and we don't, you know, speak to it or we don't hold people accountable. And it really just struck a chord of like, all right, if I'm going to keep speaking about this stuff, I need to do it bigger and I need to have a bigger voice in it. And so I boldly went out in 2018, did this TEDx and it was probably the best thing I'd ever done. I was just really grateful for the opportunity. And then as we transition now into 2023, I have my book coming out called Hello Trauma, Our Invisible Teammate, which is extension of more of a individual view at first of like what the experience is from someone who's gone through trauma, what it feels like, what it looks like, helps you psychologically make meaning of it. And then the second part of the book really talks about organizations such as sport that reinforce this maybe unintentionally or actually just intentionally because they don't know any better, causing trauma to occur and how we we all have trauma at different levels and we experience that and we need to learn to work with it as our teammate to function and live optimally. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yes. So important. And can, I mean, I'm just reflecting on my experience as a collegiate athlete and just as you're speaking, I'm like, oh gosh, yeah, there's so much there. (laughs) And then that's definitely informed how I coach too and mentor. But can you talk about 
some of those key things that you do, common things that you see in sport that are toxic that maybe we should be paying more attention to? Yeah, I think there's two folds, right? There's the coaching dynamic where we we lack actual formal education around coaches and the requirements around coaches in certain sports where there's no actual licensure or certification that is needed to coach. And so you have coaches that are volunteering their time or choosing to, if it's an employed job, give their time to coach others with well-intentioned probably, right? But the environment that's created the bracket of morality of we can speak in such harsh tones and name call and shame and blame and criticize and and forms of neglect by ignoring athletes and and turning your back to them the behavior that we see on the sidelines of harsh yelling and rejection right where we're not lifting up children and adolescents and athletes we're not coaching them at their level of understanding these things occur and they just continuously impact the athletes self-worth self-being their their desire and and what people don't understand is athletes are using a coach oftentimes as a parental figure as well. It might be a parental figure based on their family dynamic. It is a representation of like the idealization of they want to make them proud. They want to perform for them. And so the athlete cares so much of the perception and perspective of the coach and a coach who dismisses them, talks down to them, doesn't educate or communicate in healthy ways of why they're not getting playing time or how they can get playing time. It really impacts the social emotional well-being of an athlete. And as parents and as a parent watching this occur, there's so many times that I see a coach yell at a kid and scream like, like loud, raise their voice. And like someone will be like, oh, it's, it's their kid. It's okay. It's like the coach's son or daughter. And I'm like, well, that doesn't make it any better. And if that's how they're yeah. doing on the field, like what are they doing at home? Or if they are yelling at my children, the words that are coming out of their mouth, I'm like, my kid is going to be upset by this. The words that you're saying to them about how they're not trying hard, they're not working they need to be better. Like, what are they thinking? Just very negative things all in this like response to try to get a win. And it's like the missed messaging, which is where they're trying to say they're about development, but all they're focusing on is like this when it all costs mentality and the environment is so skewed and we allow it, we watch it, we enable it to exist. And that's where my mission is like, Hey, parents, let me educate you better. Let me help you ask the right questions about coach qualifications and what you should expect from your coach and help talk to your children about a healthy environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So important. And that's honestly one of the number one questions I get from parents and athletes is how do I navigate this coaching situation? So it's typically like this coach has really impacted my daughter's confidence or has said something or behaved in a certain way that has impacted how she either doesn't want to play the sport anymore or is just a different player now. And so we see it all the time. And so how do you how do you recommend parents? navigate that? I know that's a really big question, but Mm -hmm. is there, are there just kind of some best practices that you recommend parents do to help in this area? Yeah. Like, oh gosh, I've been working on my, my sport parenting blog forever. Cause I have yeah. four, four daughters and I started with my oldest. She's 11 now when she was five, I'm still working on it because I'm still <laughs> learning myself. But the first thing that I realized is as a parent yourself, you have to ask why you want to put your child in sport. Like, what is the purpose behind that? And what is your hopes for that to exist? And really, are you aligned with your co-parenting partner? Are you guys both aligned with what you expect from it, what you're hoping it will do, and what environment will help that child thrive? And then talking to the child, right? You want the child to be motivated. If they're really young, you know, under the age of eight, they're not going to have the cognitive understanding of like, yes, I really want to go play soccer and develop these life skills, right? They're like, messy just joined Inner Miami. And so I want to go be a little messy, right? That's amazing. And, you know, 
know if you follow soccer, you're all about this. Like, mm-hmm. and, and so like they're entering these ideal views, different ways. Like every child has a different reason. So I think having a family discussion first about why you're signing them up, what does that look like? Already as a parent, having discussions like, what if my child doesn't like it? Will I remove them? I've paid X amount of money for a registration fee. Am I teaching them that they have to be responsible and commit through the season? You know, as a family value, will I take them out if they really are struggling mentally, emotionally, or just aren't participating, right? These are things that come up that families don't often think about or are prepared for. And so I think first it starts with the parents of why do I want my child in sport and what do I hope it comes from? And then have the discussion of what sport do they want to do? What are the values you stand for? And, you know, what's an ideal environment for them to thrive? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's huge because I think we often miss that. And I have young kids too. And in my mind, I'm like, well, they're just going to play sports because I've played sports and they're just so great, you know, <laughs> but it can get really, it can get really messy really fast. If it's, you know, I'm even sometimes have to catch myself well, often around like my projection of like what sports my kids should like, or they're, you know, like I played this sport in college, my husband played this sport in college, so they should be playing mm-hmm. this sport. And all of that can get super messy, super fast. <laughs> and I think even like, where do you go recreation level? At what point do you put them in a more advanced skill level? How do you, you know, I think what we've navigated, what I'm navigating right now is my oldest is a pretty advanced basketball player and she really loves it. She herself is self-motivated to want to be a WNBA collegiate player. She's got it all picked out at 11. Like she's just our, my oldest, as you'd expect for firstborn. And she is pretty talented and she has been on select teams and her friends are playing with her and everyone has different talent levels. And then there's like, well, what if your friends leave now? And how do you navigate like when some kids can't be on the same team as you, right? And because of the different talent levels and how do you work through that and what's the best viewpoint? And and I've seen that from her friend being on a select softball team and her not. So it's it's a balance of conversations around how sport evolves as you progress in age groups and finding it's okay that it's best for you if your friend can't be on it or, you know, does friends matter and you play at a lower level? Cause that's important to the child as well. Yeah. So important. And what role does fun and enjoyment play in sport? Yeah, I mean, that is like the primary thing, right? When we look at research, like 70% of youth drop out of sport at the age of 13 because it's not fun. And when we look at the reverse of why do children play? Why do adolescents play? It's because it's fun. That's their number one answer. So the number one reason why they're wanting to perform and participate is for fun. And the reason why they're quitting is because it's not fun. And that statistic, like I wish that it had changed. It has been that way since I first started studying education. Oh, wow. Like it's, yeah. it's you know, if anything, it's getting worse and they're dropping out worse because the environments, because of this pay to play, you know, the structures, the win it all costs mentality, like youth are dropping out more and more because it's just not enjoyable. It's not fun. Yeah. Oh. One of our main missions is to put the play back in playing sports because when kids are playing and having fun and enjoying, like they're going to play longer, they're going to play better. All those things that like we want, you know, parents say they want, they're actually Mm -hmm. going to achieve if they are enjoying what they're doing in the process. So, okay. I have so many questions for you, but I know that you have your six sport parent types Mm -hmm. and we have sports parents that are listening right now and including myself. And I'm just wondering like what type I am. So can you go (laughs) into why, like, what's the purpose of having sport parent types and, and what are they? Yeah. So, I mean, I would love to make it one of those, like, you know, those magazine quizzes where you're like, yeah, circle here and find out your sport parenting type. Like I I thought I was going to be reading a quiz of this nature. The reality, when I say this and I speak about it and I will put the caveat, all of us 
will be in all of these six parenting types at one point or another. Mm -hmm. And it's not a status black or white, you're in one forever, right? Like we all believe that we are the supportive parent, which is my ideal parent type, right? The supportive parent is someone who is there for their child, the biggest fan, like loving on them, cheering them on, like letting the child take the lead in play and participation and competitive levels, right? That they're just cheering them on. However, we all fall in this category. And so the first one is like the vicarious parent, right? So are you like you and I both collegiate athletes and we are watching our child participate in the sport that we did and maybe the kid's getting better and we're living through them, right? We're, we're living through our child. We have this vicarious experience and we ideally we want them to be the best, but we also are getting our own like enjoyment. We put our own pressure on them because the nature of our experience now is projected upon our child's, right? So vicarious parenting, we see often. The second is the investment parents. And, you know, my dad, I love him. He was definitely supportive, but he was also the investment parent where you're almost like, what's my ROI on my kid and their sport? Mm -hmm. I'm going to buy them all the equipment. I'm going to get on the lessons. I'm going to sign them up for everything to make sure that what I'm putting in, they will get a college scholarship. They will become a professional athlete, something that they'll get. And the investment will come back to me, right? Whether the investment is in monetary value or the investment is in like pride or something you get from that. Then we have the keeping up with the Joneses. Now I think of this one often. And actually, as I've become a parent myself, I realized I had a harder time at a younger age where like everyone's putting their kids into sport. And I was like, oh, like, is it time yet? And I had this age when it was time to put my kid in sport because of the research I've done, the knowledge I have in the field. But every one of my mom's groups was putting little Tommy and Sarah and Julie like up for soccer and T-ball. And I was like, maybe it's time. And so I'm like keeping up with everyone else. When I had originally created this parenting type, it was much more for like, Oh, they have a private coach. I'm going to give them a private coach. Oh, they bought a $400 bat. I'm going to buy a $400 bat. And like, we're eight, right? Like you don't need a $400 bat for eight years old. So it was kind of like keeping up in that level. When I w- myself went through it, I actually fell into this pattern of like, should I put my kid in score now? Everybody else is doing it. And oh, really, yeah. And then the other one is the social parent. And so this is a parent that is like, all of them are well-intended, right? When I speak about them, they're not bad. They just, we could see the detriment it could have on the kid's emotional well-being as well. The social parent was definitely my mom. You go to the sporting events, you're like booster mom, you're the dugout mom, you're there for your own social well-being. Like I'll never forget my mom would sit in the stands of my basketball games, like knitting a blanket or crocheting a blanket. My teammate Mallory would be like, oh, what's your mom making? I'm like, oh, she's making a blanket. I'm like, what's your mom making? She's like, oh, she's making a sweater. You know, like they're crocheting together and they're like, it's their nervous energy. But like, it was my mom's social hour at sporting events. She would get too anxious in my events. So she was there for social time, hangout time, whatever she wanted to be part of. The last one is the independent parent. And I have a real hard time naming this one, but it's harmful when like sport is like the babysitter of your kid, right? So you think of this parent who like drops off their kid and, or, you know, someone else takes them to practice and the, the parents aren't there. They're not involved. Like sport becomes the essence of the playground for the kid. And you think it's good and healthy, but the parents aren't really around much, right? They're working, they're doing other things and, and that's good or bad, right? Sometimes you have to, because we have busy work schedules or things of that nature, but 
when we're not there as much, the kid will be like, but you didn't see this. You didn't notice this. Right. Mm -hmm. So we can see the negative and the positive of each side of these sport parents, ideally all trying to be the supportive sport parent, which the biggest lesson is like, let your child lead, be their biggest fan, let them bring up the conversations on the car ride home, let them decide what level they want to be at. And we're just there cheering them on and like bringing them to practice and obviously paying for it, but we're not fully totally invested in living through them. Mm-hmm. Wow. Those are so eye-opening. And I, I, you're right. I actually see myself in all of them, <laughs> in different ways. but a good reminder to get back to that parent role. And we talk about that a lot in our program too, of like what the parent role is and when we start to creep into other things, but I, you laid it out, you know, in such a perfect way because people can identify with like, oh yeah, there's that, there's that. So good. Okay. So let's talk then about if we're channeling our supportive parent mm-hmm. prototype, and that's what I'm going to go with, there's just like a lot of common situations that come up that parents are like, how do I be a supportive parent in this situation? So for example, let's go back to the coaches, like say my daughter's not getting playing time, or there's some sort of conflict with the coach. And I know that this can be super nuanced because there's just so much, you know, there's lots of sides to every story and all of that, but say there is a situation that I commonly hear from parents, like she's not getting playing time. She wants, it doesn't seem like anything she can do to get more playing time as a parent, how do I support my kid through that? Yeah, I think first, and I've gone through this myself with my kids <laughs> of watching them. First, mm-hmm. is this an accurate statement, right? Is there truth in this that they're not getting the playing time? And is this really upsetting your child, right? So is it you're witnessing, you're like, why is my kid not playing, right? Or is it they're coming to you saying, gosh, like I'm not playing, or maybe you notice that they're just sad and you're like, hey, like is everything all right? And then they express like they're frustrated because they're not playing. So first mm-hmm. I would find that source out. And then generally, like I would, I believe in teaching the athlete to use their voice, teaching the athlete to speak up and ask questions and practice the conversations and, and say, Hey, do you really want to to learn how to play? Do you really want to have this conversation? Have you explored with a coach, what it would take? What do you need to do? And kind of ask their comfort level. And I always say, are you comfortable in this conversation by yourself? Would you like me to initiate it with you? Do you want me to be there and support, but let you take the lead? And it's okay if you go with your child, but let mm-hmm. the child lead in the conversation, but you're just there for emotional support for them. You're there to say, hey, mom's here. It's like social referencing when they're babies. They're checking on you to make sure that, that it's safe. Or you can say, hey, I'm, I'm happy to email the coach, but I want you to know what I'm saying. And I'm going to speak on behalf of you with me here if it's kind mm-hmm. of at that point. And I think when you're having a conversation with a coach, it's much more my kid loves this sport. My kid wants to play. What is it going to take for them? They're so interested in this. They want to get better. What could we do outside of practice that could help them? You know, and I also ask the question if it's recreational level, every kid should be playing. If it's Mm -hmm. your parents have to understand if it is pay to play where it's select level or higher competition level, that is a different league level and playing time isn't always dependent on equal time, right? And it is based on talent. And so parents have to understand what they're signing their child up for as well, because they might, and they'll put this in all their coaches statements at the beginning of the year, no playing times guaranteed, you know, Mm -hmm. things of that nature. And so I think parents actually have to sit with that too. And, and you might have to have a hard conversation with your kid hey, this is a more advanced league. You might not get to play this season. If you really want to play this sport, I will help you out in the best way possible. We'll practice, we'll do what we need to, and we'll have the hard conversations. How can you be a great teammate then? How can you be a great practice player? How can we measure your success if it's not through playing time? And so finding ways for them to get a win, even if it's not through the playing time that they'd like to have. Yeah, 
Okay. Yes, this is so great and so tangible. And it also just empowers the athlete too in these situations where it can easily be, you know, there's nothing I can do. It's all, you know, it's all the coach's fault. And you know, start to kind of, or it's this player's fault or it's that. It's like, okay, regardless of all of that, like what is in my control and how can we go about this? So I love that. How do you know as a parent? If there is a situation, I mean, obviously we can think extremes, but like where we might need to remove a situation, a child from a situation or a team, like, how do you know when that is? I've gotten that question a few times too. I think first, when you notice a real distinct change in your child, right? When behaviorally or emotionally, they're just acting different, whether it's they're acting different when they're heading to practice, when they're at practice, when they're leaving practice, you can start to sense, like as a parent, we kind of have the sixth sense of like, something's off with my kid. So when you start to notice that, then really having the honest conversation about like, what's going on? Where's that? You know, I would even observe, you know, I think our biggest strength as parents is observe how practices, observe how their interactions are with their teammates and with their coaches and just understand body language. And if you notice that they're really having a hard time and it starts trickling and impacting their sleep and their eating and their, you know, just school and their social life, then it's time to say, Hey, like we need to work through this. And I see it so much with our adolescent athletes. I think that freshman to junior year, like it's a hard transition into high school. It's a lot of pressure that you're putting on with academics. It's a lot of pressure with the status and they're already in this identity formation as who who are they as humans? They're starting to drift away and become little themselves adults in a sense. Yeah. And they're trying to figure out the world. And then they have this performance-based sport that's like filling their ego and or hurting their ego. And it's, mm-hmm. it's really hard to navigate. And I think this is a place where we need to be a little bit more careful and educate and check in and say, hey, like, what does this mean for you? What's the reality of the next level? I think with NIL coming into play, it changes the whole dynamic of the whole recruiting process. And I think if it's, it's okay to say, Hey, we don't have to do this right now. We can put it on pause. We can like do something. We can do a lower level, like sport in itself can be found in so many different ways. It's just about moving your body. And so if they don't want to play on a team, okay, let's go find a way to move your body in the gym, go do something different. That's active to help them just stay physically and mentally well-being better. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Again, with that whole, there are other options and, you know, there's always another path, another way. So it's great. I do want to ask you just about kind of switching, not away from parenting, because I think that all of this is going to inform how we help support our athletes, but to the strategies that you use with athletes to help build their confidence and their mental strength. Are there any like go-to strategies that you use for the athletes that you work with? Yeah. I mean, I think first and foremost, I always call it like feel your feelings. I think feeling identification yeah. and emotional regulation, like those are big fancy words. <laughs> emotional regulation is like too hard for athletes. I'm like, you just got to feel your feelings, but more yeah. so like understanding what feeling fuels them to be their best. Right. And how do they get into that state? So it's all about building self-awareness. And I like to do kind of an, an on-ramp and an off-ramp of a practice that a game of like, before you go in, like just spend five minutes reflecting on how are you feeling? What's your plan today? What's the goals you want to have? Just setting some intentions, you know, then go to practice and then have like this post-reflection, right? Like, how did it go? What did I do? Well, what do I need to get better at? you know, what's my plan tomorrow. And so it really is a little bit of taking some journaling aspects and pre-performance and post-performance routines where you just kind of just pause and it takes five to 10 minutes. Like, Hey, how am I feeling right now? How do I get in that emotional state? All right. What's my plan going into practice? Right. And then afterwards, what do I do? Well, 
you know, what do I need to improve on? What's my plan tomorrow? It just gives them a sense of slowing things down and having control and having real intentionality around their training. So that's generally like one thing I'll for sure do. I think the most influential when I tell every athlete, if you just learn this skill with everything I teach you, it doesn't matter anything else. If you learn this, you're going to be great. And that is actually intentional breathing. And mm-hmm. I always tell them, if I teach you how to breathe, you're going to be great. And they're like, I already know how to breathe. I'm like, right, right. but are you intentionally breathing? And right. so- And there's so much work on mindfulness and meditation. And there's so many different art forms and practices around breath control. And I really start very simple. I call it the five minute mind. And I ask them just five minutes a day, if they can practice their breath work pre anything else, because then when they're in a state of stress, they can use breath better. I just teach them a simple triple threat breathing, inhale for three seconds, hold for three seconds, exhale for three seconds. It's no different than if you look through circle breathing, box breathing, there's so many different frameworks. All of that gets very overwhelming for the athletes to like try to count and figure out. And I said, Hey, just in for three, hold for three, out for three. You'll figure out the best pattern once you get using it and you'll find out maybe you need to breathe in for five and hold for two and like they'll figure it out themselves. I'm just naturally guiding them in the first framework and teach them how to breathe. And then I tell them five minutes because research shows Ideally, 45 minutes a week will change your neural pathways, will change the neural structure in your brain to make neuron better, will help cognitive processing, have more clarity and confidence. And I'm saying, hey, I'm just asking you to do 35 minutes. And when I tell them, but 45 minutes is your number, they're naturally going to add on breathing at different times throughout the day. And they'll get so much just power and, and control. And then they'll start using it. We'll get more in depth once they know how to do it. Like, hey, before you go pitch the baseball take your breath right before a free throw shot. Like when is it useful for you? When do you need to calm down? And they're going to naturally use the breath in so many different formats before a test, like as they're just in a conversation, I'll take a breath and calm back down. So I think breathing is probably the primary number one thing anyone should utilize in their work they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's huge. Okay. And what about visualization? I mean, that's just a common, like when you think mental training, you know, visualization comes to mind too, but can you talk about like the science and the research behind visualization and why it works, or maybe you think it doesn't, or maybe you found that it doesn't. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think when I was first learning about visualization, it was really a fascinating story and I'll never forget. And I use it now with a lot of my work. It's much more for, for my injured athletes or my return to play athletes when Mm -hmm. I first start integrating in. And then there's very sport specifics that I use visualization for, because it's really ideal for informational like learning and skill development. But I remember learning in school about this Olympic diver and she was hurt and it was the Olympic year and she needed to go in and she wanted to dive, but she couldn't train for like three or four months leading into the Olympics. And so she would go up and get dressed in her in her suit and she'd have her towel and she'd do her entire routine, even up to the 10 meter, sitting on the 10 meter, like and then visualizing her dives. And she was doing, you know, there's a, a pet lap theory that talks through the different sensations that you can go through. The allow you to kind of engage in all the neuromuscular movement of your body. And, and you'll get neuron firings in different body parts when you're imagining you doing the skill and depending on what level you're working through and, and how much you can imagine that skill to exist in the time that you're putting it through, your body will get the firing in its muscles and believe that it's worked out. And in this story, I remember this swimmer, this diver, actually, she would do it for like two to three hours, like her whole full set over and over again, like get her body up and go back down. And then she ended up getting like second in the Olympics. And I was like amazed as like a master's student learning this, like this, this must work. Like, you know, and then I thought back to when I first used it, when it was organic, like I'm like a kid playing basketball, like in my court at like five, like the last three seconds, I shoot the ball and score. Like I'm imagining. And I'm like, 
we all do it. We all use imaginary play. It's natural part of us. Everyone knows how to imagine. They just don't know how to tap into it in a formal way that can get the same muscle movement, the skill set, the knowledge base. So I bring people way back to say, hey, imagine what it feels like to eat your favorite food. Take me through that. Describe your food. Describe like something non-sport related. And they can go into full detail of what it's like. Mm-hmm. And then we'll break down the process of actual first person, third person visualization. Do they watch themselves do it or they, mm-hmm. is it through their eyes? And then if it's really skill specific, like gymnast, right? Gymnasts like to use it for beam routines, working through things, more team sports. I think they'll use it if it's a skill acquisition when they're trying to learn how to do a skill. And then if it's like pre-game, a lot of athletes like are imagining their best game, right? And you always want to do imagery. The number one rule is like, do it where you're successful. And so if you imagine yourself failing, I say, well, what happens next, right? So I always let them have control of what happens next. So they know what to do if the worst case happens. And then I say, now redo your imagery until you execute it where it's done correctly. So they're ending on that positive framework in their mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So good. And so powerful. I love that. Cause I actually get that question from athletes too. They're like, I try and visualize them. And like, I go, my brain visualizes me messing up. And yeah, naturally, like, yeah, I'm like, oh, yeah, that will happen. Now visualize yourself responding and getting back in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I love that you said that. Okay, I just have a couple other questions. First, athletes who are like playing well in practice and then they either hold back or fall apart when it comes competition time and they're not themselves. What's happening there? Yeah, generally we have great practice players. And then, well, then you have the opposite people who just don't care in practice and they do yeah. amazing competitions and that as a teammate you're like why like I'm working so hard and why are you so great I think like everyone has a different compete level they have a different switch for competition they have a different meaning behind competition so when your athlete is not competing to a level that you see them competing at practice, or you see them perform or what you believe or what they believe they know they can do. It's generally related to two things. There's a fear of evaluation or a fear of failure. And it, and at, especially adolescents, they're always falling into these frameworks, but everyone, whether they're eight or they're 58, like they're going to be in these patterns. Like, are we afraid to fail? And what does that mean if we do? And so we usually do just enough right? We're, we're performing not to fail versus performing to take the risk to be successful, right? Mm-hmm. Or we have this fear of evaluation where if I do mess up, what are my friends going to think? What is my coach going to think? Will he stop my playing time? Will she not let me start next game? What mm-hmm. are my parents going to think? What are the scouts going to think? Are the recruiters going to think? So all this evaluation stuff comes into play as well. And so then you have athletes who are stuck in the good enough button. They're not allowing themselves to be great and they're not performing poor enough where they're bad. They're just good enough. And when I find my athletes that are like that, I just ask them like, well, do you want to be good? Do you want to be great? Like the choice is yours. You're going to play the game no matter what, like, how do you want to show up? And then it just comes back to them gaining more control and confidence. And I'm like, Hey, the worst can you do? Like take a risk. And if you fail, like, then you know what it feels like. And then we can adapt from there. And so then it just lets them kind of figure out what that would look like for them. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. Okay. One last question. (laughs) I feel like if I could just, you know, have hours with you, I would just ask you a bunch of questions, but we're wrapping up here, but I do get this question a lot too. And I want to ask kind of from the perspective of a parent, when you see that your athlete is not being aggressive, give this question a lot, like she's not being aggressive out there. And it could be related to what you just said, you know, Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. all of the fear and likely there is something subconsciously going on there or consciously, but I get parents who are asking like, how can I make her be more aggressive? How can I make her be louder or more of a leader or just more aggressive out there? 
Yeah. And oftentimes I'll be like, Hey, are you a vicarious parent putting your own viewpoint of how your kids should be performing? Right. Like right. <laughs> it's oftentimes and, and coaches fall in this pattern, parents fall in this pattern. We are watching one level of the playing field. We're not watching the view of the athletes playing field. We're not in their mind. We're not understanding what it feels like or what it looks like. And so I go back to, well, let's not talk about the term aggressive because we've been yelling to five-year-olds be aggressive and like five-year-olds brains are like all the soccer field being like, wait, what does that word mean? Like they don't even know what that means. And then they're trying to think aggressive is like punching someone and being angry. Mm -hmm. And so we're somatically telling them all the wrong things. And I, I break it down much more to what skill, like what behavior, what, what skill do you want to see them do? What initiative do you want them to take? And if you could see it differently from them, are they doing it right? Is it going hard for a tackle? And, you know, maybe they're not a vocal leader, but they show up early. They do their skill work. They're like working hard and their personality is not going to be that. They're not going to be loud. They're not going to be, maybe they don't want to go in for the tackle and win the duel because they have different spatial awareness. And they can see the field differently. Right. And so for me, I go back to don't look at the sport and the field or, or the playing dynamic in your eyes, look through theirs and let them talk through what they're seeing, what they're doing, how they work through that. And if you feel like they're timid, then explore, like, what do you want them to look like? Can you give them an example? Can you show them? But sometimes it's more just accepting your athlete for who they are and the strengths mm-hmm. they have and let them build upon and have their strengths shine even more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That is so good. That thought always does come into my head. Like, what are we projecting out of them? How are we thinking that they should be showing up? And after, you know, I've coached a lot of players just in my own volleyball teams that I'm like, yeah, we have, I don't want everyone to be right. aggressive, you know, like this leadership and, you know, this is good too. And it's all of us together that make up a good team. So another perspective of that. Yeah. Well, Hillary, this has been really, really great. Super informative. I've been learning a lot and I know that this is going to be so this, you provided just so much value in this 45 minutes. So thank you. Can you let our listeners know where they can find you and also about your book that is coming out? Yes. So I love to use Instagram at Dr. C mindset. That's kind of my most just educational platform where you can get some, just some top tips that are coming out, um, some things that are happening, the latest research in the field. We also have a Facebook page, which is our practice, Texas Optimal Performance and Psychological Services, if you're on Facebook. And then my book will be coming out at the end of September. Again, it's called Hello Trauma, Our Invisible Teammate. And it will be an ebook, an audiobook, and a paperback. And so look forward to that. I'll definitely be kind of posting that all over my social media for pre-sales. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much again for coming on. It was great to have you. Thank you, too. I hope you enjoyed that episode, moms. Quick reminder that registration is open for our What to Say Challenge happening May 14th through 17th. Head over to register so you can join us to learn proven strategies and game-changing scripts you'll keep in your back pocket for those pre- and post-game pep talks. The challenge is just $19 during our earlier pricing happening right now. So head to sportsmom.fyi forward slash challenge. That's also linked in the show notes, and I will see you there.